Hello, and welcome to Unscripted, conversations about sexual and domestic violence, a podcast featuring employees and subject matter experts from domestic and sexual violence services and partner organizations discussing all aspects of interpersonal violence, plus solutions and resources for support for residents of Fairfax County. I'm your host, Kendra Lee. On this edition of Unscripted, I'm talking with Andrea Nunes-Gardner, Crisis Response Services Team Program Manager with Domestic and Sexual Violence Services, and Gretchen Soto, Licensed Professional Counselor of Soto Training and Consultation Services, to learn who commits violence and how accountability for their behavior is part of the solution. Andrea, Gretchen, thanks for being here today. It's a privilege. We used to think domestic violence was a private family matter between a husband and a wife, with the husband being the aggressor and the wife suffering in silence. Listeners can't see it, but I'm using air quotes when I say used to, because despite years of truths being shared about this form of interpersonal violence, that stereotype is still the go-to for many people when they think about violent relationships. What we'll discuss on this episode of Unscripted Conversations in Sexual and Domestic Violence is how to shatter those myths about what people who cause harm look like, the reasons they cause harm, and where accountability fits into this narrative. So, Andrea, with all we've learned over the past 50 years, why is the dominant thinking about domestic violence still husband beats wife? That is a really good question, Kendra. (laughs) Uh, And... We could go so many ways in here, but we are still talking about domestic violence from a very heteronormative perspective. So, you know, we continue seeing an increase of violence against women uh, in general in our society, not just in the United States, but in the world. Uh, so it makes sense that we continue talking about domestic violence being a matter of men abusing, being violent towards women, but we know that domestic violence affects everyone in, in, in many relationships. And relationships have changed as well, but we're still slowly catching up to understand how relationships have changed um, in the past 50 years. So that means we kind of need to take a step back and define domestic violence, right? Yes, we do. And domestic violence is very complex, but I think when we talk about domestic violence, the first thing that people think about, it is physical violence, Mm -hmm. right? And domestic violence is much more than physical violence. We can spend a long time just defining domestic violence, but I'm just going to add, you know, that domestic violence includes emotional abuse, verbal abuse, financial abuse, spiritual uh, and there are so many other coercive and control. Uh, so, you know, someone might say, well, I'm not abusive or I never harmed anyone in my relationship, but thinking about harm being just physical violence, right? And people have harmed their loved ones um, in other forms of abuse, not just in physical abuse. And has um, as a devastating impact as physical violence. So if we understand domestic violence better, that it is all these things, not just bruises and black eyes, but also all the things you just mentioned, that means how we think about who has caused violence, the people who cause harm, that changes how we think of them, right, Gretchen? 
Absolutely, Dustin. When we're talking about domestic violence, we really have to recognize when you took us back over 50 years, it's really deeply rooted in patriarchy and other Mm -hmm. systems of oppression like racism, like heterosexism, like colonialism, like classism and caste systems. And we're starting to understand that intersectionality and in understanding that and understanding as, as Andrea defined, um, you know, domestic violence, we know that who commits it, um, acts of, of harm against others when you have harm so generally defined, um, is encompassing of much more than the stereotype of man against woman. Persons look just like you, me, Andrea, your neighbor, right? The school teacher, the bus driver, the supermarket clerk, right? Um, it, it doesn't fit one size fits all. We all have the potential to be, um, emotionally aggressive and abusive toward one and to cause harm, um, repeatedly. So. My understanding is that a lot of the people who cause harm, whatever they look like, are likely, in a lot of cases, victims of some sort of interpersonal violence themselves from when they were younger or when they were growing up or whatever. They aren't these psychopaths who just like causing harm for pleasure. I mean, those people exist too, but that's a different podcast. Um, These aren't people who are just trying to cause harm. They are people who are have been harmed themselves. So let's talk about that for a little while. Because I imagine the people who don't do this work like you guys do think they're just monsters. There's no help for them because they don't do this work and they don't know what I just said. Yeah. I mean, the adage that you'll often hear and it doesn't really cover everything adequately, but is hurt people hurt people. Even Mm -hmm. my grandchildren know that. Um, and how we come to being, the environments in which we're raised, right? How we see our caregivers handle stress um, and how our brains are formed in that context um, impacts who we become, right? So when the baby's in the crib and they hear screaming, but they don't have the ability to articulate what's happening to them, um, their little bodies are processing all of that fright and the body keeps the score. And it often manifests later. Um, I'm sure Andrea's chomping at the bit to extrapolate on that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And and I will share a little bit of my experience as um, a domestic violence counselor. Uh, So I was a a DAP counselor, which is a domestic violence intervention program that uh, serves those who cause harm. And I can tell you that 95% of the intakes that I completed, people have experienced some kind of adverse childhood experience, have experienced some trauma. And how they learn how to respond to that stress, you know, just adding to what Gretchen was sharing, that how they learn how to cope, how they learn from their parents on how relationships happen, how to handle conflict, how we communicate with others is such an important piece that we learn from early childhood, how we regulate our emotions. Uh, oftentimes in adopt groups, I would ask, um, I would ask participants who have learned how to regulate their emotions when they're little kids. Did your parents talk about feelings? Did your parents talk about emotions and how to deal with those emotions? And a hundred percent of them were like, uh, 
I never talked about my feelings. I that there was no room for that, right? And so we don't. Most people don't learn how to regulate their emotions, especially in relationships, um, from a young age. And so when you start a relationship as a young adult, you're gonna just do what you know, and and if you don't know how to regulate your emotions when you don't get your needs met, or if you don't know how to regulate your emotions when there is conflict, if you don't know how to communicate with your partner, you can see where that can lead to domestic violence. Yeah, I mean, Andrea articulated it so beautifully. I had the privilege of of, of managing the program um, with which Andrea was leading up as supervisor. And um, as we talked throughout the community with our domestic violence intervention partners, it wasn't just unique to our program. I mean, mm-hmm. across the country, what we are understanding with regard to domestic violence is it's really a paucity of skills, right? There is a dearth of understanding of how to self-soothe, how to communicate, how to recognize the emotions, all of the things that, that Andrea mentioned. And that's why partner intervention services and services and supports for those who cause harm become so quintessential so that for families that want to stay together and be safer, their tools um, and resources to be able to learn how to do so in a healthy manner. And I want to add that even for the families that don't want to stay together, yes. right? Even when we leave the relationship, keep in mind that leaving the relationship does not guarantee safety, does not guarantee that abuse stops. Um, a lot of people are co-parenting after leaving a relationship, right? And sometimes the abuse continues in that way. Uh, or maybe you leave the relationship and the abuse stops. That person will start a new relationship. So if we don't address the domestic violence, if we don't address the person who is causing harm, they're just going to go from relationship to relationship causing harm. And that impacts our community, right? Like we want to live in a community that is free of violence, that is safe for everyone. And so... I think that there is a little bit of a, a danger when we talk about, you know, leaving a relationship, right? That is like, give that false hope. If I leave, then things will be better. But it's not really how it happens. I think most people would say that, you know, when they left the relationship, sometimes th- things even get worse. Uh, so I think, you know, from Gretchen's point, there is, that is an option for people to leave. But there's a lot of people that also want to stay in the relationship and interventions for those who cause harm really helps people staying safe and doesn't put the burden on the victim. The victim doesn't need to be the only one thinking about their safety, but the person who is causing harm is also thinking about their family safety. And that's where when we have service for those who cause harm, we bring those two things together. You know, if someone wanted to stay together in a relationship, they have that opportunity of both thinking about the safety. If they don't want to be in a relationship and they're both receiving uh, interventions, if they're both working towards safety, they can have a safer family. They can have safer co-parenting. We have a safer community. So what do we tell people who say, just leave? Because like you're saying, everybody doesn't want to leave. Or leaving could put you in more harm or in continued harm. So. What do we say to the part of the community, the segment of society, and it's a large segment, that says, just leave? How do we explain this to them? Oh, thank goodness you asked that question. We don't. 
it's the it's the short answer. We as I mean, Andrea, you know, began to allude to this. The riskiest time for a person who's been in a domestic violence relationship or in a personal relationship with interpersonal harm is at point of departure and leaving if they so choose. And so mm-hmm. why would we intentionally guide somebody toward risk? We do this unknowingly um, and unwittingly thinking that leaving is a solution, as Andrea spoke to. And so when you um, encounter loved ones, friends, persons out on the street, you know, see something, do something, say something, there are wonderful hotlines right at your disposal to guide you. You don't have to know what to do. You just need to know where to reach out to get the guidance of what to do safely. And listening, just listening and and being an empathic ear to somebody who's experiencing a situation and helping them to liaise to resources, whether it's through their face-based community whether it's through um, the, the hotline and, and services like domestic and sexual violence services provide and coordinating linkage with an advocate. Um, perhaps they're, you know, community groups, maybe just through fellowship in the family. There are lots of resources to have healthy and safe conversations where you're empowering that person's choice and autonomy instead of replicating harm and coercive mm-hmm. control by telling them what to do. They already have a PhD in being bossed around um, and told what to do. And so unintentionally, we actually recreate the very situation that we're trying to eradicate. Um, and I know that you and Andrea know that hotline number for DSVS off the top of your head and can plug it even better than I can since I've been away for some time. Go for it now. It fits right in. 703-360-7273. And we will say it again before the show ends. So you both worked in ADAPT, which stands for Anger and Domestic Abuse Prevention Treatment. That program is part of healing for people who cause harm, correct? Yes. So let's break down exactly what ADAPT does, what it is. I can <laughs> I can definitely talk a little bit about ADAPT. You know, I have a passion for uh, that program. So um, ADAPT is a state-certified uh, domestic violence intervention program. It is an 18-weeks program. And, you know, I think that the main thing that ADAPT does is helping people healing, learning, emotional regulation skills, and uh, promoting accountability. Uh, that is, I think, one of the main things. And so when people are seeking our services, they're going to be met with a lot of compassion, with a lot of empathy, and also they're going to be um, asked to be vulnerable, right? And we mm-hmm. can have that vulnerability without compassion, without respect. Um, and I believe that one of the things that we hear the most from ADAPT clients is that they didn't feel judged. They felt connection with their counselor. They felt connection with, um, with their group. And so we are healing, helping people heal through relationships and through that compassionate approach, right? And that we are not just telling people, oh, you did a, you know, you harm your partner, that's horrible. We're actually working with them to heal themselves because we can 
be accountable. We can't have relationship with others if we don't have a good relationship with ourselves. So I think on the on a nutshell, that's what Adapt does. And I uh, I'll pass to Gretchen and she can add. Thank you for the springboard. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, folks who are um, less informed about pathways to healing for those who cause harm and how it supports familial, personal, and community safety balk when they hear the word compassion mm. and person who causes harm. Uh-huh. Um, we are largely, you know, here in the U.S. in a society where I'm not even in the U.S. and I'm saying I'm there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I still think of myself as there, right? Um, you know, largely are, are tuned to thinking that stick, stick, stick is what gets change. And it's actually carrot, carrot, carrot. Stick, stick, stick. That is the third largest incarceration rate per capita in the world. And that until folks want something different and more, we don't tend to change. And so that's what um, Dre is speaking to in terms of compassion, helping folks to find loving in themselves and compassion for their own um, sense of emotions, harms that they've been through to be able to see it in others. Because if you can experience it in yourself, you're very rarely going to have any empathy about what you do to somebody else. So you come home and kick the dog, have a bad day of work, you have a couple of drinks, and then start cursing and yelling and screaming. You take the bank book. Perhaps want to have intimacy repeatedly when somebody's not wanting, you know, as your partner to do that. It takes on a much different look when you don't recognize the feelings in others. And that's what really ADAPT is so much more than an anger um, management program. Anger management is only one piece of the puzzle. Um, ADAPT really focuses on, and Andrea spoke to this, emotional regulation. So to recognize what you're feeling and to learn how to respond before you get to 10 and to learn what response options there are and to recognize what those feelings are, to own them, to have some level of distress tolerance, to be able to sit through discomfort Many people who cause harm are immediate. They'll say, well, I went from zero to 10 and forget that there was one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine in between. And so adapt folks, uh, teaches folks to be able to recognize that progression that seems so instantaneous to folks. And then I heard Andrea speak about that other ingredient of accountability, right? Accountability happens in ourselves. We can't make somebody accountable. Even prisons and jail cells can't make someone accountable. It's really about, you know, folks recognizing that there's something that they've done that caused harm, taking ownership of that, wanting to change it, wanting to not replicate it again in the future and to offer something different. And that really does take some skill building. It's a muscle that has to get kind of stressed to build and to get really bulgy um, so that that's the response that someone leans on instead of old habits that were learned perhaps from early childhood experience, like Andrea said. And I want to add that also ADAPT, you know, or any domestic violence intervention program is just beginning of that own journey. And a lot of our our participants recognize that uh, as we are going through the ADAPT, you know, weeks, people will ask for referrals for counseling. They recognize, you know, the thing that you asked in the beginning, Kendra, about those traumatic experiences. They start recognizing like, oh, <laughs> I have been through those traumas. I have witnessed that. 
in my family. And that is triggering as well during group. And they start, you know, realizing how those early experiences is, it, are impacting them now in their relationships, how it, how, you know, it makes it difficult for them to have relationships with people. And so they recognize that that is just the beginning. And I'll tell you, like, there is a lot of people that come to adapt that is not really you know, eager to participate, but by the end, they're asking for more. They're asking for more therapy. They're asking for more resources. They sometimes even ask, like, can I do it again? I really <laughs> feel like this was helpful. During the pandemic, we had people asking, I don't have any other supports right now. Can I do the group again? Just so I can continue that connection. So I can continue learning. I can continue healing. So I think that gives you some perspective that, you know, that healing process is not 18 weeks. I don't want people to think, oh, <laughs> I'll come to adapt and I'll, you know, I'll be completely, you know, healed. But it's more about like, that is the beginning. That is the start. Yes. And you mentioned 18 weeks. It's because ADAPT is an 18-week program, correct? Right. Correct. Exactly. There's some um, partner interviews intervention programs mm-hmm. that are 36 weeks throughout the country. Uh, throughout the country. There's some that that are less. It's almost like if you get a cut on your finger, Kendra, and I get a cut on my finger, how long will it take to heal? Mm-hmm. We don't know. It's different for everyone, right? right. And so um, that's, Andrea spoke to the importance of having some alternatives and resources um, after those 18 weeks. And, and it's interesting, um, the stereotype that you mentioned early on in our conversation, Kendra, of the person that's, you know, depicted on a lot of the films as having no conscience about the things that they do and can cause harm and aren't really able to make long-term change. Those folks tend to prune out of our ADAPT program pretty early on in the process. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um and uh, and recognize that it's not a good fit for them, that they're not ready. Um, back in the day, we used to call that non-compliant. And now we just really recognize some folks just aren't ready for, for change at that juncture. Uh, the folks that tend to stay in program are the folks that are really ready to take some level of accountability and steps toward change and coping and uh, obtain more skills to to last long term. One of the things that really um, stood out to me when Andrea was speaking was the need for additional resources. Mm-hmm. And our public defenders in Fairfax really struggle because they have clients that that want to be healthier, that want to make change. Um, and and then they can't find the resources to be able to help them to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's where, you know, our public defenders are working toward improvement of uh, public safety, domestic and sexual violence, you through these podcasts, and those persons who are listening, we can all play a part in terms of how do we promote services when we um, are in our communities? How do we create groups and cohorts that offer spaces and places for healing? Um, and not just for the persons who have been harmed. Of course, that's quintessential. Also for those who have caused harm themselves because they live among us. We all have that potentiality. And to Gretchen's point, you know, also thinking about that providing resources for those who cause harm is for the benefit of the community, is for the benefit of survivors, is for the benefit 
of the children, right? Like, so mm-hmm. if we don't provide those resources, we're going to continue having that cycle because the kids are still, even if, again, going back to, even if they are separated, right? The children might be still experiencing that and they might repeat that cycle either as someone who is going to be harmed or someone that was going to cause harm. So I think that is also an important connection when we talk about service for those who cause harm that benefit survivors. When we think about funding, you know, Gretchen was talking about resources. Unfortunately, you know, there's no funding for just to provide you know, interventions and service for those who cause harm. And so Mm -hmm. I think that is one of the unintended consequences when we only provide resources for victims. We put the burden on the victim. The the victim is the one that needs to leave and go to shelter. The victim is the one calling the police. The victim is the one asking for a protective order. The victim is the one looking into how to make their environment safe. You know, like, so I think that is important also to highlight that if we want to be serious about addressing domestic violence, we also need to provide resources for those who cause harm. Okay, Gretchen, you mentioned, and Andrea, you just mentioned it too, mm-hmm. funding and a lack thereof. What other limitations do we have for our ADAPT program and for people in other counties that may not even have an ADAPT? So you, you spoke to it. Um, part of it is... Uh, well, it all kind of, for the regions that don't have it, oftentimes they don't have it because, um, they're not aware of funding. There is some federal funding, um, our, in Virginia, our V-STOP program, um, through the federal government is able to be, um, which is a grant opportunity is, um, one of the few federal grants that can be directly appropriated for services for partner intervention programs. Um, those funds tend to, be limited, but oftentimes annuitized once uh, you're able to kind of secure hold of them within an organization. So being aware of what the funding opportunities are, um, being vocal in the political process to advocate for additional funding through our state legislatures and um, federal funding opportunities, and then looking within the community to, you know, really rise up and create spaces and places. How often do churches sit idle when it's not the day of service, but we could be cultivating with practitioners or peer support opportunities and healing spaces? Um, there are some communities that are with really, really rigorous parameters, even bringing partners and those who cause harm together these are communities where they have the resource to assess lethality risk really carefully. There's strong partnership between um, the probation uh, departments and uh, intercommunication between those programs and the mm-hmm. partner intervention providers. So, you know, what what's missing is all of the bones are there mm-hmm. to create safer pathways. Sometimes the spirit of the law at first blush looks like it prohibits an interconnectivity between probation programs and programs that um, support those who cause harm. But then when you start drilling down and looking for opportunity and reading in between the context of the law and you bring together a brain trust of folks, you learn that there can be tighter cohesion for developing um, cultures of support and accountability 
Um, and Fairfax has been on the precipice of a lot of this work mm-hmm. between Juvenile Domestics Relations District Court, um, our county attorney's office, uh, the state um, Department of Criminal Justice Services, and Domestic and Sexual Violence Services. So there has to be a thirst um, and recognition for need, mm-hmm. uh, which plants the seeds for cultivating opportunity. You guys have said a lot and given us a lot to think about. (laughs) If I want to get in touch with ADAPT, it's not just, it's not court mandated only, correct? So if I feel like I might be skipping, I might be zone zero to 10, I'm not yet causing harm or I'm, I'm thinking about causing harm. I can contact ADAPT and, and sign myself in, can't I? Yes, it, you can sign up for ADAPT voluntarily. Uh, the criteria is that, you know, when you come to ADAPT, that you are, you have some awareness of your harmful behaviors and mm-hmm. wanting to change, you know, and we even serve people that are ambivalent, that are like, I'm not really sure. I think that I might be, you know, I might be causing harm on my relationship. We also, you know, work with people who are not a hundred percent there, right? But that there is some recognition, um, or at least that ambivalence that I'm talking about. Okay. I remember uh clinicians um in the Adapt Talk program talking about folks being pre, 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 pre ready for change. We call it pre <laughs> pre contemplation. Remember that Andrea. <laughs> and that sounds like they made me do it. If they hadn't done this, then I wouldn't have done that. And mm-hmm. we welcome those folks as well because mm-hmm. our job is to help to increase problem recognition. That's part of accountability, right? It's helping folks to frame experience differently than the way they've come to understand it. If everybody understood what they were doing wrong, then we wouldn't even need our services, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we could just hand them a pamphlet and send them off on their way. But, um, you know, we, we recognize that ambivalence, lack of insight, lack of awareness, lack of understanding is how harm is created in the first place. And so our job is to really help folks to increase perspective taking. And our ADAPT program and so many of our partner abuse programs in the region, in Arlington, um, their peace project, in uh, Fairfax, we also have upper, uh, OAR. Mm-hmm. Uh, which um, does a great job. There, there's some strong programs out there to to do just that, and you know, and then programs like this, Kendra, we are so fortunate and excited for this opportunity because through these conversations, and you started here, it changes people's understanding of what someone who causes harm looks like, mm-hmm. as well as what domestic violence is, right? It's not a caricature. It's not necessarily a lifetime movie. It can be subtle. Perhaps you're one that's causing harm and haven't even realized it because it's just tone of voice and yelling and screaming, right? And how much harm can that do? And the answer is lots. Um, it can have deep penetrating effects to have someone um, demeaned, marginalized through voice and tone. We can weaponize voice and tone. We can weaponize money. We can weaponize our hands and objects. Um, and those who do it can be a man. They can be a woman. They can be young. 
They can be old. They can be in the White House. They can be homeless on the streets and everything in between. They can be black. They can be white. They can be yellow. They can be Asian. They can be Latino and Hispanic, right? And across the board. Violence doesn't discriminate. And those who harm, who cause harm, um, crosses the rainbow. Okay. I think that'll do it for this edition of Unscripted Conversations about Sexual and Domestic Violence. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Andrea and Gretchen for joining us today. If you or someone you know has experienced interpersonal violence, call the Domestic and Sexual Violence 24-Hour Hotline at 703-360-7273. That's 703-360-7273. Or visit fairfaxcounty.gov and search for Domestic and Sexual Violence. To listen to other county podcasts, visit www.fairfaxcounty.gov slash podcasts. Unscripted Conversations About Sexual and Domestic Violence is produced by the Fairfax County, Virginia Government.